0: My guest on the Big Wave Surfing Podcast today is Trevor Carlson, renowned Hawaiian big wave surfer. Originally from Hermosa Beach, he moved to the North Shore at 18 years of age and never looked back. He now lives at sunset where you'll often find him surfing when he's not chasing the big swells around the world. Trevor is a WSL Big Wave Award multiple nominee and one of the most respected big wave surfers in the sport. Enjoy my conversation with Trevor Carlson. Trevor Carlson, welcome to the Big Wave Surfing Podcast. Thanks for giving us your time. How are you doing, mate?
1: I'm doing great. How about you?
0: Yes, good here. I'm, I'm here in Japan and uh, you're in Hawaii. Um, actually, you're probably the first Hawaiian Big Wave Surfer I've had on the program, which is quite ironic considering so many... You know surfing big wave surfing comes from hawaii and there are so many big wave surfers but that uh is not your full story is it It didn't all start in hawaii for you did it
1: no i grew up in hermosa beach california and moved to hawaii when i was 18 um i moved out here my goal in life was to basically work as a lifeguard for my that was what i thought i wanted to do and grow up and do And so I worked in San Diego City for a summer when I was 18 and moved out here and spent five years working for the city and county of Honolulu Lifeguards. Um, I spent a year working in Waikiki and then four years working on the west side. And uh, eventually quit lifeguarding to get into roofing sales and solar uh, solar sales for the sake of a more flexible schedule and um, to get into a commission job versus an hourly job. Right. So I could travel and chase waves and, and not have such a lockdown schedule.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that yeah, that's what I was going to talk about, chasing waves. That's been one of your, your missions in life, hasn't it? Um, so you, you you found yourself in Hawaii. You, you set your base there. You established yourself there. And where did you first start surfing um, in, in Hawaii?
1: Well, I started surfing in Hermosa Beach uh, growing up. Which was I, gr- I? was lucky enough to grow up on the water in Hermosa, mm. um, so I served like El Porto and Hermosa and up and down the coast in Southern California. Um, but then when I moved to the North Shore, I moved to um, uh, I moved to the nor- I moved to Sunset Beach and basically just became obsessed with Sunset um, and all the waves around it. But um, to this day, my focus has always been Sunset Beach.
0: Right. Yeah. That's interesting because recently there's been so so much talk about Sunset being underrated and what a great wave it is and it should be on the CT tour. Um, what is about what is it that relationship you have with Sunset? Why do you like it so much?
1: Well, Sunset's a great. It's a deep water wave that when it gets big is a great training, but it's a great place to train with your big boards for bigger waves. And so, in a weird way. Sunset is kind of like a mini in terms of the lineup and the way that we have a North Peak and a West Bowl. And there's on the west days they just come through the west one, they just come through the West Bowl. And on the north days they start in the North Peak and they run all the way through the West Bowl. Is a lot like Jaws in terms of uh, the layout of the wave. And so it's a great place to spend a lot of time out there surfing your big boards and get really and basically just put as many hours as possible on those big boards so that you when those big days come. You are more ready than most people who don't surf big boards all the time. So for me and my style of surfing, I mean, I I, I like to surf all kinds of everything. But I really, what makes me the most happy would be like a, a twelve foot day or like a, uh, a basically maxing sunset is like my favorite place in the world.
0: Right. So Maxim Maxim's Maxim sunset. How big is that? About twelve to fifteen or
1: like. 12 foot Hawaiian. So on the, is um, maybe like 20, 25 feet on the face. Right. Uh, And that's like my happiest place in the world. Um,
0: But people always talk about like, it's a difficult wave. You know, like when the pros go there for contests, they often, they get it wrong. They're, They're the best surfers in the world, but they get it wrong. Why is it such a, is it? And why is it such a difficult place to surf?
1: Well, there's, there's a lot of different, there's, basically two waves out there. You can go surf the point on a big board or you can surf the West Bowl on a smaller board. But when you see the guys show up for the contests, they're basically all surfing like six eights. Maybe like a seven oh would be considered a really big board for those guys out there. Whereas I like to surf my like nine eight out there or maybe my nine oh. Um I consider like an eight six kind of a small board on the big days out there. And uh and so there's just different approaches. So when you do see those contests happen out there, they're they're all sitting on small boards and they basically all surf the West Bowl because the West Bowl is where, you, is where you get barreled and it is better for the style of surfing that they're trying to do and the type of competing that they're trying to um, to do out there.
0: Mm. It's quite hard to read, is it?
1: Uh, wh- wh- where I, I don't think so. You know? I mean, it, it's relatively consistent. Um, I know that some of my backside friends out there are not as in love with the place as I am being frontside out there. Mm. And, uh, but that, I think that's a little bit because of it's kind of a running wave and it's hard to look over your shoulder sometimes on running waves like that. Whereas it's a lot easier to look down the line front side. Yeah. Um, yeah. but
0: yeah. And then people will always know you cause on the front of your, your board, you've got the, the, the white and black lines. Yeah. Do you, is that, is that your signature design?
1: Well, i S I've been doing the black and white stripes on the front of my boards for, I think about eight years now. And, um, the reason I started doing that was because I got a number of, I started getting some photos on like Surfline a long time ago and it was, it kept saying unidentified surfer mm. and it, to me, it really bothered me. I was like trying to kind of build a name for myself in terms of big wave surfing. I wanted to get on the tour. I wanted to compete and prove that I could hang with some of the best in terms of that world, but it was never going to happen for me if. I was always the unidentified surfer, and so back then I don't know what clicked, but I've basically decided uh, that I was going to do something on my boards that made made them stand out and and something that was undeniable. Like, okay, that's that's definitely Trevor's board, and so I think it had something to do with the Greg Knoll stripes on his board shorts. I ended up putting the stripes on the front of my gun once, and then um, and then I kind of just stuck with it for a lot of years and. Actually, this winter is the first winter that I'm changing my stripes from like the standard black and white stripes I've done for a lot of years now. And now I'm just basically doing like tiger stripes and getting a little more artistic with it. Right. Um, a little more similar to the Laird Hamilton stripes he did on his boards uh, with the Jerry boards. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's uh, just fun, fun to play with them.
0: Yeah, I'm not, I just think it's a really smart idea because I, I'm, when I look at people, sometimes some guys are doing that and I know who they are because I thought I know that I know that he always rides that color board or that star, that designer board, and like every time I see a um, a photo with your board in it, I know it's you. So it it definitely worked, but that's for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah, so, uh, it's almost bothers me sometimes these to the, these days because I I did it for so long with the intention of getting noticed, and then one day I realized that I didn't really want to be noticed as much as I used to want to be noticed, and so. <laughs> at a certain point like it is a great way to create like a, a persona i guess or to like if you look into a, a photo of a lineup and you can i can spot my board super easy um which is which is great and it's cool to see other guys like Jimmy mitchell has always done it um kailani is doing it now with his blue and red stripe uh there's a number of guys out there who have like their Thing that they do on their boards, which is which is cool. Everybody has their little artistic touch to their quiver um And this is kind of why i'm changing it up now and just doing something slightly different like Mm -hmm. garrett has the i think they're lime green boards with a couple stripes up top and uh, It is cool. It is that you can see From like a basically a mile away without knowing who's who you can see the boards and kind of see the few Personalities out there who do the same thing over and over. Yeah.
0: Yeah, good so when Gary Lyndon was running the Big Wave Tour, were you involved in that? Gary Lyndon was, a, was on the podcast. He did part one and part two of his life story, actually. It was very interesting. But he, When he was oh, awesome. running the Big Wave Tour, were, were you doing that?
1: So I started chasing the events around, trying to get into the events before it was the WSL Big Wave Tour, when it was still, I guess, just the Big Wave Tour, and Gary was running it back then. But I think Gary yeah. was also running it the first year. It was the WSL Big Wave Tour. Yeah, the first he, years? they took
0: it over, and then he, they kept him on to keep running it. Um, yeah. But they, it became the WSL Big Wave Tour then. But before that, I think Gary was funding it out of his own pocket, you know, for however long it ran. Um, but they, they, a lot of the guys, they tell me, oh, they, they were great days. You know, None of us made any money. Gary kept promising us, one day we'll make money out of it. But nobody cared. Everybody had a great time.
1: So you weren't involved in those days, were you? So I was showing up towards the end of those days, like in Peru and the Mavericks and just trying to basically like show up and get in. And, and from what I, and and Oregon as well. And, uh, I had a friend Aaron Ungerleiter who I think he just showed up to the Oregon event and he's a really good big wave surfer, but he's not like a big name in the big wave surfing world. Um, he lives out here on the North shore and he basically, I thought he just showed up to the event and he ended up finaling in the event, which is amazing to like be a, random guy shows up and like makes it to the finals. And when I heard that story from him, I was like, wow, I, if I just keep showing up, maybe I'll get lucky. And they'll like, let me in the event. And then I think it was Peter Mello took me aside after like the third event I'd showed up to. And he's like, I was actually going to fly to Europe and try to show up to the Punta Galea event. And he said something like, don't show up. He's like, you're wasting your money. He's like, you're not going to just get into this event by showing up. He's like, but you've proved your point at this point that like, like you have proved your point, you'll get your chance. And then, I made the uh, I made a video wildcard, I guess, like application kind of thing for the WSLB Wave Tour. The first year, it was the WSLB Wave Tour, and uh, Nick Vaughn and I were the two guys. The first year, the WSL became the tour, or it became the WSL Tour. That we got the two wildcards for like the new guys on tour, and we got into the events that year. Right. Um, so chasing those events around during the time that it wasn't the WSL Tour, and also, being able to collect a few clips of my waves and getting some good waves before the events and after the events um, is what got me on the tour eventually, and uh, um, yeah. Mm.
0: So let, let's talk a little bit about your results, your awards. I, I of course, I know of the the double the XL ride of the year nomination, two thousand and fifteen Naz, Nazare eh? Nazare wave.
1: Well, um, I wasn't nominated. I was nominated for. The biggest wave of the year towing in Nazare uh, with Andre Carr, um, the Russian. Okay. And then I was nominated for the biggest paddle wave of the year in Nazare the same year. And then I got nominated for the worst wipeout of the year a couple years ago, two, three years ago. And then I was nominated four times for the men's overall performance award. Right. Um, and so I think it was the first year that I got on the WSL Big Wave Tour that I got nominated for the... Men's Overall Performance Award, which to me that was like the that was the one that I always like aspired to to win. Which I haven't actually won any of the awards, but that just getting nominated alone is it's like a is an accomplishment. Oh, absolutely,
0: and, um, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I think you, anyone you're a winner if you get nominated for those things. I think you know. So that's a pretty pretty impressive list of uh, nominations uh, that you have there. Yeah. Um,
1: What, what do you prefer? Uh, towing or paddling? Well, big wave surfing has always focused entirely around paddling. Mm. Um, I didn't really even start towing until maybe five years ago. And then the only reason I started towing was there were days that I just felt like we were missing out and we like weren't maximizing what was happening out there. And it was basically just like really windy days that the waves were giant and super windy. And we, Kind of could paddle them, but it wasn't really it was basically like sit out there all day and maybe get a wave Or like maybe fly fall from the lip or like just have something crazy happen Mm -hmm. and so, um I think I started towing at jaws a little bit like randomly on the windy days and uh And then I got hooked real quick because You realize how easy it is to like let go of a rope and get towed and do a big wave and You can put yourself into a really crazy situation really easily or you can get a really crazy wave relatively easily by letting go of the rope. I mean, that doesn't mean it's easy to necessarily surf the wave, but it's compared to paddling. It's surprisingly easy to get yourself into that situation. Uh, Whereas paddling, when it's that big, you have to, first of all, like want to be out there. You have to get in front of it. You got to have the balls to turn on it and go and then have all the stars aligned to really like be in the right spot and set the right line. And, um, And so towing is, Kind of a novelty in a sense to me it's it's fun it has a time and a place um i love towing in nazare towing in nazare is like nazare is a whole other world to- nazare is basically a tow wave that we can paddle sometimes when it's in the right in the perfect situation um but uh
0: we have in terms uh, of, um, yeah. what, what, one of our one of our good friends on the on the big wave surfing podcast is joao da macedo who is always re- well, he's regarded as one of the best paddlers in the world i think and um He's always trying to. He's always saying, "I want to. I want to paddle the biggest wave at Nazaré." Yeah. So. Oh yeah. Joe is awesome. Yeah. He's and he, he's such a gentleman, such a nice guy, you know. But uh, yeah, so that's his. That's his his ambition is to is to paddle a big wave at Nazaré. Pretty pretty difficult though, yeah. Because oh
1: yeah, I mean, a, the uh, there's a, only a few guys out there who will really have a shot at lining up and doing really doing it right the way that someone like Joao or Alex Botello or uh, uh, Jamie Mitchell or there's a number of guys out there who have gotten really big paddle waves. Yeah, yeah.
0: So what, what's what been, what's been your, your best contest result um, over the years?
1: You know my first the first surf contest I ever did in my life was the Jaws contest um, uh, when I first got on the WSL tour and so I didn't grow up doing surf contests and I didn't grow up like in the professional surfing world or like in the surfing world in terms of like anything other than I just was obsessed with surfing. Um, and so I didn't, I've never really figured out, it took me a number of years. That's I'll take that back. It took me a number of years to really figure out how to surf in a contest. Um, but I did final in the Porto Escondido event. Uh, and I think that was the last actual, maybe it was the last actual WSL Porto Escondido event, um, and then I've got seventh in the Nazare event. And then I got seventh in that first Jaws event. And uh, so I've, I, uh, yeah, it, it's interesting to gauge your success based off contests because contests are such like a moment in time.
0: I was just gonna ask you that question. How, how important is big wave surfing contests um, compared to free surfing big waves? It, what place does it have in the sport?
1: Is it really important? I, or, or it's not? an interesting question. Um, there are guys out there whose entire careers, the few guys out there who have made careers out of surfing big waves, like Twiggy, um, Twiggy's a great example. Greg Long. Yeah, Greg Long. Um, Contest for everything to those guys because that's where they really. They do, they surf really well in contests. They know how to surf contests. They know how to, uh, they know how to choose waves and events and be patient and when to go, and when to, when to not go. Um, it's, it's like a, a totally different little world of, of, big wave surfing where I personally don't make a living off surfing big waves or surfing at all. Um, I never have, I, I most likely never will. I have no real aspirations of being like a professional big wave surfer in terms of like supporting my family off surfing big waves just because um, it seems a little bit short-term mindset for me to think that I'm going to go and spend like a few years trying to make some money off surfing big waves. And then what happens if I get injured, which I tend to get injured like every other year or like every year. Um, But I think big wave surfing is revolves around free surfing and having the big days where we get to go out there and do what we love and have and just go out there and get to do it but the contests are a great way to publicize the sport and a great way to really put six guys in the lineup and see what can happen and, and this is the advantage of the contests. is like when you on the, like let's say a big day at jobs these days so we have like 50 guys in the lineup or at mavericks so there's like 50 plus guys in the lineup it's it's kind of a shit show of like figuring out who who has the attitude enough to just be like, screw everybody. I'm going to take this wave and go, which like you have to have to like get really good waves on the big days because this is a selfish sport where we, we have to say like, basically screw all of you. I want the biggest wave of the day and I'm going to take it and I'm going to take it from you. Like nobody's going to give it to you out there. And so you have to bring that attitude into some of those lineups where on contests you get to have a little bit more of like a, obviously there's still going to be someone next to you. Who's like one of the top best big wave surfers in the world. You have to take away from them. But it is a kind of a a nice feeling knowing that there's only six guys in the water sometimes, and you get to go out there and maybe get the wave of your life with a legitimately amazing safety team behind you working for the WSL events. And um, I have a love hate relationship with events. I absolutely love what they do for the sport in terms of like the progression of the sport. Sometimes having an event at a certain spot like Jaws can actually magnify the attention on a place like that and so it makes a lot more people go to jaws to surf jaws more with the pure intention that they think that they're going to get into a jaws event if they go get a good wave out there or like at mavericks guys will show up to surf mavericks because they think if they get a really good wave out there they're going to get into the event and um that might be partially true but you're going to have to basically get like the best wave ever or like biggest wave of the year the best i mean it's not as true as people seem to think it is right um
0: yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe later on, um, let's come back to the, the road for, you know, the road forward as a professional big wave surfer. Is there a road forward? Can you make a living from it? But for the moment, let's keep, let's keep on chasing waves because we're talking about you, you, you say um, you, you've been surfing a lot at uh, Mavericks, at, um, at Jaws, um, Nazare. Um, what are the waves Oh, Puerto Escondido! You had a, you had a bad wipeout there, didn't you? Where was your your award nomi- award nomination for the worst wipeout? Was that
1: Puerto? I was actually at Jaws in a contest. Ah, okay. And I'll, I'll chalk that one up to just bad decision making in the moment because I I knew I was late, but I saw the bowl sucking up so nicely that I figured like there's a like a one percent chance that I might be able to get into it, even though I whipped pretty late on it, and um yeah uh yeah, back to actually, con- con- contest can pull the crazy out of you sometimes and like i on a normal surfing day would never have gone for that wave but because it was a contest i turned and went mm-hmm. because of the one percent chance and then i free fell very far and actually, luckily I didn't get too yeah, hurt
0: when i was doing the research i remember a few days ago i, I pulled up that video thinking <laughs> oh my god yeah that's one hell of a wipeout. yeah and um and I read Oh, I watched one of your other videos that you did on YouTube and you were talking about, um, risk versus reward and how you become more calculating as you got older and probably had more injuries. Talk to me a little bit about that.
1: Um, I've, uh, basically every year, I mean if you're going to try to push it consistently over a period of many years, like you're going to get hurt somewhat consistently. And, um, so basically every year I, I chalk up some sort of one more injury on the list. And, uh, um, I, I would say like my first year surfing jaws, uh, I'm not sure what year, like maybe six years ago, the first year that jaws paddling was like a thing. Um, I'd go out there and try to catch like basically anything i could get my hands on like small waves, big waves. Like I would catch like 20, 30 waves a day and just spend like 10 hours in the water a day and be the first guy in the water the last guy out of the water and just completely spend the whole day out there. And, uh, and every year I go out there, I'd catch less and less waves and I've been catching better waves and I've been getting better at choosing like a kind of letting a lot of the little ones go or letting a lot of the little is a relative term out there. Um, but letting a lot of the smaller ones go and choosing the better, bigger ones. And so it comes partially from like, not wanting to, you can, you can destroy yourself on like what we'll call a little wave at Jaws. And you can also destroy yourself on a big wave of Jaws. So if you're going to take the same risk over and over again all the time, and just keep catching a certain amount of waves out there, you might as well just risk it for the really good ones. Yeah. And so for myself, that's kind of my new mindset. Is like, if you're going to take the risk, like make sure it's worth it.
0: Yeah. Sensible, good mindset, I think. Um, what kind of injuries have you sustained?
1: Well, um, I guess we, we could start from like younger to older. I I can't actually, I mean, um, all right. So when I was like 16, I was snowboarding. I cracked my skull, broke my tailbone and my wrist at one fall. That kind of took me away from the snow for a while. And I realized I was going to just stick to surfing. Um, I, when I was like in my, maybe five or four or five years ago, I broke my back. I broke my ankle um, skydiving. Uh, I was really obsessed with skydiving for like four years and um, I got really into wingsuits and, and I had about 350 jumps and close to a hundred, 350 jumps and about a hundred wingsuit jumps, um, which in the skydiving world is still like kind of a novice professional skydiver, but I was just um, to the average non-skydiver. That's a lot of skydives. Uh, And I actually quit skydiving after that accident. Um, I dislocated my shoulder. I got some nerve damage. In my, I just got some nerve damage in my shoulder in Porto Escondido. I got knocked out. Um, I packed a closeout. Well, it didn't look like a closeout. It looked like a really good wave. And then, like Porto does sometimes, it like looks like a really good wave, and then it runs, and then it's eventually a closeout. And then once it closed out, I rotated in the barrel and did like the landing on the shoulder, kind of like deflecting the face situation, or trying to protect my head and I actually just hit sand inside the barrel, which was kind of a, a shocker. And, um, I got knocked unconscious. And then I woke up face up and, uh, uh, couldn't move my left arm and then ended up going back to home to Hawaii. And uh, the doctors told me I had severe nerve damage in my arm and I had pinched the main nerve to my arm. And so I might not ever use my left arm again. And it took about a year. And I think it was about eight months in that I started really you know, getting, to use my shoulder again. Um, And then I was surfing Mavericks and I dislocated my left shoulder uh, in March of like uh, maybe a year or two ago. And then two two years ago, year and a half, something like that. And then um, I didn't do the surgery even though they told me I should. Uh, And then I dislocated my shoulder again in at Lani Akea, like a big day at Lani's. like last winter in November, and then I did do the surgery in January, and so that kind of messed up my season last year. Um, I did. Oh man, my early twenties, my knees. I tore my meniscus in my right knee, three years in a row in my early twenties, and then I tore it in my I tore my meniscus in my left knee, like when I was eighteen. Mm. Um, and then, uh
0: so you've been through the ringer. <laughs> you've, been, you been, your fair share of injuries then. Yeah?
1: This, this list goes on and on. Like I've, yeah. bro- I've broken both wrists twice. Um, I can't move my big toe and my right foot because I dropped glass on my foot and cut the tendon and the surgery didn't. The surgery failed and like doesn't work. So it kind of messes with my surfing a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah the, so, the conversation. <laughs>
0: yeah, I mean, I, it, it's interesting because like um, I come from the world uh, as well as surfing all my life since the age of nine, I come from the world of rugby. I played rugby for a very long time. And um, two things on that. One is one is uh, is the amount of injuries that you sustain over a career. And uh, I'm I'm uh, probably 20 years ahead of you now. So I'm suffering uh, quite a lot now from the injuries of, of my career and uh, trying to work out how to um, improve my longevity, how to keep doing not rugby, how to keep surfing, because I've got big problems with my neck and stuff. So this is like something for you to bear in mind in the future. I'm sure you're already thinking about it, but longevity is so important. But eventually those injuries catch up with you. And uh, um, and so I was sort of moving it into how do you you manage, uh, how do you prepare, how do you train Um, how do you keep your body in shape so that you can keep surfing at the level that you want to?
1: So when it comes to training, my training has changed a lot over the years. Um, when I was younger, uh, I was a swim team kid. So my whole life revolved around and I did some cross country and, and, uh, running. And so my whole life revolved around just like cardio and distance cardio stuff. Um, once I had all those knee injuries is when I got into yoga when I was like 20, maybe, or I think it was like 20 when I got into yoga and I got super obsessed with yoga. And then to this day, I'm still really into doing yoga. Um, not just like Yin yoga stretching, but also like power vinyasa flow kind of yoga. Um, and so then through most of my twenties, I thought for myself and for surfing, the best combination of training was basically like ridiculous amounts of cardio, which would be like trail running and biking and uh, swimming and paddling and then lots of yoga on top of that. Um, And then as I've gotten older, I actually don't do as much cardio as I used to for the sake of just beating down my joints all the time and my knees and my ankles and my shoulders and, and just doing, and so now I do uh, more of a combination of yoga and strength training. And um, I think in my mid twenties is when I got into doing a bit of CrossFit. And then I went through a few years of like, pre obsessed with CrossFit, and then I realized that even with that, there's like a fine line of doing too much, like especially in the off seasons when I would do that. Um, and uh, so now I have a, f- I'll call it like a functional fitness weightlifting program I do at home, and uh, and I still do a lot of yoga at home. And I like to, I still love to body surf. Body surfing, I think, is one of the best ways to train for surfing in big waves. Um, just spending time underwater and spending time swimming and uh, body surfing,
0: yeah. I, and I yeah. saw, you, I saw you uh, on your Instagram feed hanging from some bands. Now I've seen that before. What do they call that? Where you you're hanging upside down yep. with bands twisted around you?
1: Uh, after I broke my back in my ankle, um, I had a compression fracture in my spine. I basically like had a bad landing skydiving where I hit some wind landing, and uh, landed on my feet and butt and tried to roll it out, but still broke my uh, compressed my back. And so through my recovery process of my back, I took a, like a yoga teacher training in aerial yoga, which is basically like uh, the yoga silks hanging from the ceiling and do a lot of hanging upside down from the silks. And, um, it's a great way to decompress your spine. And so for my back, the hanging upside down and decompression of the spine was an amazing thing. Um, and, uh, that's kind of just one, one more thing to do for recovery.
0: Yeah. And I noticed you in ice baths. Is that a part of your routine?
1: Yes. I invested in a sauna and ice bath, um, like situation in my, for my house. And so after working out these days, I try to preheat the sauna and some days I'll do like maybe 15 minutes in the sauna. Some days I'll do like 30 minutes. We used to do like 45 minutes in there and just destroy ourselves. And I'm kind of not into doing that anymore, but then, um, depending on my mood, uh, we'll do ice baths afterwards. It will do like a, we'll do rounds of like 10 minutes in the sauna, three minutes in the ice bath, 10 minutes in the sauna, three minutes in the ice bath And like three or four rounds is like two to three or three to four rounds is great. And, um, I started doing, I think that was actually only about a year ago after my shoulder surgery that i started doing that for my shoulder that i was basically with, my shoulder was a really rough recovery after the surgery and so the ice was a uh, as miserable as the ice is the shoulder was as miserable that i would put myself through anything to try to make that shoulder better and i think it helped um yeah
0: yeah yeah I, I, um I don't think there's many big wave surfers now who don't have a sauna or an ice bath in their house, (laughs) do they? Do you know, I always think like the the CT shortboard surfers could learn so much from the longboard surfers about about proper body management and proper training and stuff, you know, Um, because I don't think they do much, a lot of them. But big wave surfers, it's probably a, a matter of necessity that you guys have to do it though, don't you? Uh, Because of because of what you do, you know, you you're putting your life at risk every time you paddle out into a a 50 foot or 30 foot set, whatever it is. So it's something of necessity for you. What about what about um, meditation and breathing? Any special routines on that?
1: Oh, yeah, I don't know. I didn't bring that up. Um, Most of my I'm 32 years old now, but basically from 18 to like probably 28, I was really completely obsessed with, with spearfishing and so that means free diving and spending lots of time underwater and um, I actually don't spearfish as much in the last like four years because uh, all the time throughout the summer that I would have been spearfishing now I'm foiling because those flat days that are like just super flat ocean are now the perfect foiling days which I've gotten in the way of all my spearfishing days um, but uh, breathing and spending time working on expanding your lungs and creating like a CO2 and O2 tolerance is I think for a lot of years was one of my biggest secrets to my progression of big wave surfing was how comfortable I was underwater. And um, it's funny cause I've been thinking about it a lot recently and uh, surfing, we've been surfing some really good days at sunset recently and I'll be underwater like, man, you know, I haven't really been spearfishing all summer like the way I used to and I'm not as comfortable right now underwater as I was when I obsessively spearfished all the time because it's, it's just funny how much of a direct connection that is between your comfortable comfortability underwater.
0: Yeah, that's something that's very interesting to me is that uh, being able to be comfortable underwater is such a hard thing to do. But all the big wave surfer guys is say, well, you know, you just have to relax. You have to relax and go with it. And everyone I interview, I say, well, that's fine. But how do you how do you do that? You know, I mean... When you do your breathing, or let's take you in. Let me take you into an impact situation where you wipe out um, or you get caught inside. When you, is there anything you go through? Any like uh, routine ritual you go through just before you go before you go under the water? What do you do?
1: Well, mine, When it comes to the mindset of getting caught inside and get your ass kicked and like being underwater doing endless cartwheels. uh, For me, a big part of it is kind of just reminding myself how many times I've been in this situation before. And um, that's not something that everybody can necessarily tell themselves, but everybody can remember a time when they were surfing. Surfers can all remember a time when they're surfing and they got their butt kicked and they're underwater way longer than they wanted to be underwater. And for myself, even in really big days these days, I try to remind myself that like I've it's, I've always been underwater longer than this time. Like I had a two way hold down at Jaws a couple years ago and uh, I was underwater for just under a minute. I have a video of the whole like extravaganza and it was very, very shitty. And, um, I got caught inside Mexico by this one big set that just the photo just doesn't even look real. Um, and I really almost drowned. And so these days when I get caught inside, especially like if it's, a uh, like a 10 or a 15 foot wave. Like, and I try to remind myself that like I have gone through so much worse than this moment, even though this moment is really not fun and really like my, my lungs burn and my everything burns and I don't want to be underneath here. And like, I just want to be back on the surface. I try to remind myself that like, I've just done this so many times before that like, all you really can do is relax. And the more you freak out about your situation at that moment, it's really just going to make it worse.
0: Yeah. So when you get to the point, like you're talking about your double wave hold on, where you your brain is saying you have to open your mouth and breathe, how do you go the extra ten seconds or fifteen seconds? Uh, is that just mind over matter? Or...
1: This comes down to experience, and for me, like spearfishing, like there's a there's a point in the burn where you know that you can go so much longer than your body thinks it can go. And there's different levels to that burn in the lungs where you know that when you hit convulsions, convulsions don't mean that you're going to black out. They're just unfortunate and convulsions can last for like, convulsions can last for a really long time. They don't mean you're going to black out. Like let's say you're doing like breath holding on, on a mat and you're training Sometimes you'll get – and you're trying to do like a four-minute breath hold. Sometimes you'll get convulsions like two minutes in. It doesn't mean that you can't hold your breath for four minutes. It just means that you're going to have to deal with convulsions for two minutes of the four minutes. Or sometimes you'll be a little bit warmed up, and you'll get convulsions like three minutes in, and you just have to deal with the convulsions for like one minute. But it doesn't mean that you can't hold your breath that extra time. And so when you're underwater getting like your butt kicked, just to remind yourself that like all these – this is where it's important to educate yourself on the on this like take a free diving class and go understand the all of the phases your body's gonna go through and understand like the the pains that you're feeling and what that burning in your lungs is, what the convulsions are, and understand that they're just uncomfortable. They're not necessarily a sign of of drowning or they're not a sign of you're gonna black out. And um, the more you felt those convulsions and the more Your body can get used to them the less terrifying they are when they have them when you have
0: them yeah and as you say a lot of it's experience isn't it so like if if you if you're paddling out somewhere and you're and you're very fearful and there's a high level of anxiety you're going to be able to hold your breath for less time than if you're relaxed and you know well hey i've been out in these waves a hundred times before I know if I go down, I'm going to be okay. And therefore you can hold your breath for longer. So a lot of it comes back to experience, doesn't it? I guess.
1: But the only way to gain experience is by going out there and doing it a whole bunch of times. And yeah. So that that's one of those things where like everybody has to go through the same learning curve. Like nobody starts off with that level of confidence. You just have to gain it by doing it.
0: Yeah. And I know my, my listeners always want me to ask the surfers, this one question about how do you what mechanisms do you have for coping with fear so you're talking about you have to go out there the first time and do it now there's always a first time for everything it might be you going to a different place going out in bigger surf how what mechanisms do you have for coping with fear
1: um, the best way to cope with fear is to train in advance for it and to to spend a lot of time thinking about it like like, visualization. Let's say maybe, yeah, vis- visualizing these situations long in advance so that by the time those moments come, you've spent your like let's let's say like uh, in Hawaii big wave surfing is kind of a winter time thing. We from October until March we get big waves or so we get like that's our season out here. Um and if you spend your whole summer not thinking about surfing big waves and you just spend your summer working and doing what you do, winter's going to sneak up on you real quick and you're going to go through all those emotions of like holy crap like it's back and I'm not ready but if you spend your whole summer like for me I work all I work all summer and and but I still train and focus and try to keep my like mind working in that same direction of winter's gonna come and you better be ready and um so if you spend a certain amount of time preparing for it mentally when that time comes it's easier to deal with it than it is to just like one day be like I want to do this and then go out there and do it and then not have that that like momentum of uh the momentum
0: mm. so you got to be mentally and physically ready for it just keeping your mind on it all year round yeah so that's what you're saying yeah all right hey trevor before i let you go um the, the big the big swell what are we now we're november now so the the big wave season is is kicking in until march you say um so what what, are you, what have you had any good swells so far this year
1: We've actually had a really good year surfing sunset already. Um, and, uh, we've had a, we've had a bunch of really good swells at sunset. And um, this is where I obsessive over all yeah. like when I'm at home and, um,
0: you live, you live on sunset, don't you? Or very near sunset.
1: I live up Pupakea on the North shore, which is like 10, mm. five or 10 minutes from sunset. Um, right. I used mm. to live at sunset, but just, up, I'm up the hill now, which is a little more land, but, uh, uh, I mean, that's where I've been surfing all summer. I basically just foil all summer. And then, um, and in terms of big waves, like we've had a, a couple of days ago, sunset was really good. Um, it looks like the next week's going to be flat. So it's time to, I'll be working the rest of the week. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, the early season pipe usually isn't that good because the sand is all built up there and backwash gets really bad. And so they need like a number of swells to come in and flush all the sand out of there before it gets really. Or to get over there.
0: Do you surf Pipeline much?
1: Or some years I surf it obsessively. When I was in my like, and um, through most of my early and mid twenties, I surfed it obsessively. In the the last few years, I'm more just sticking to Sunset for the sake of the the vibe and the crowd and the. Yeah. You can go to sun, You can go to Pipe and surf for like half the day and catch a wave or two, and they're good waves. But like you kind of deal with this very intense aggressive, um, scene out there. It sometimes I just don't really feel like dealing with the crowd out there. And so I go through sunset all the time.
0: Yeah. So we've just finished, uh, just seen the, the, the epic Epsilon swell come through. What did you think about the the Irish waves that one that Conor McGuire <laughs> took at Mugmore? I
1: mean, I mean, the wave Conor got's like the wave of a century. It's yeah. the kind of wave that'll be remembered forever. And, uh, a wave like that someone like connor spends a lifetime putting a team together and and getting to know the spot and and just like waves like that don't just happen on accident for people it's it's really cool to see connor get a wave because i've got to meet connor in Nazareth and he's a nice guy and and a real humble guy and it's nice to see somebody who puts the time in and things go their way and it's it's always nice to see like nice guys get really good waves and uh that's that's just an incredible wave,
0: like you say, wave of the century. But I mean, I've been spent a lot of time in Ireland. It's just a um, bit too cold, <laughs> bit too cold, and that I, that day was so gnarly up there, wasn't it? You know, I love I like the Guinness though. I like the Guinness, <laughs> the people in the Guinness. <laughs> the cold <laughs> waves I'm not so not so keen on, to be honest. But I come from I come from the UK, so I'm used to cold waves. But it doesn't help. I still don't want to go back to them. <laughs> but uh okay let's finish with so what are your goals for this season coming into the big wave season
1: um my goals for this yeah yeah my my goals for this season especially coming back from the shoulder surgery in january was i just want to go surf jaws and uh i really want to go back to Nazareth and do some towing over there um i'd like to head up to oregon and do some surfing and snowboarding up there and uh do some foiling up in oregon um I'd like to head back to Totos this, this winter and spend some time down there. I've been to Totos twice and I haven't really, I got to surf in the event, the contest down there, but it wasn't really the best waves for a contest. And so um, obviously Mavericks, uh, I'd like to go spend some more time over there. I dislocated my shoulder last March over there. So I kind of need a little, just, I need to get back over there and kind of. Um, exercise it. That, exercise yeah. That wave it. Just, <laughs> that, w- that wave's intense and the crowd's super intense and, um, I've actually been going to Oregon instead on uh, in some of the last couple of years because it's so mellow up there and it's still such a good wave. Mm. But uh, my goals this year haven't really changed from any other year. I just want to surf all the same waves that like the, the circuit of big waves and and um, not get hurt. And and I have a daughter now and I have an eight-month-old little girl. And so um, my goal is to like just not get hurt and go surf big waves and keep, keep doing this thing. And yeah.
0: The thing you love. Yeah, well... Trevor, we wish you luck doing that. And um, thanks for telling us your story today. I'll put all your links in the episode notes and uh, people will know where to find you. And uh, perhaps sometime in the future, if some big swells come through, you can come back on and, and give us a report of how your waves went. And uh, so we'll be, we'll be tracking you. We'll be watching you. And uh, stay safe in the big waves.
1: Great. And, thanks uh, for having me on.
0: Yeah, thanks for your time. I do appreciate it and uh, in- enjoy the, the winter big waves. Thanks, Trevor. I will. Bye. Bye bye. Thanks.
2: Feeling my way as I go, chasing the light. circle of dreams Never before to be seen It's coming apart at the seams As I'm chasing the line of the rainbow Why do we have to paint pictures Pictures that never come true tell stories Sometimes the words are too We have to paint pictures, pictures that never come true. Oh, why do we have to tell stories? Sometimes the words are too few. Oh, why do we have to paint pictures? The future is good that I know. Carefully step as I go. Kissing the one that I love, life on the wings of a dove. Oh, why do we have to paint pictures? Pictures that never come true. Oh, why do we have to tell stories? Sometimes the words are too.